Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is Kirk Damon. We are still in quarantine, so Kirk is not here, and you will have to just imagine him filling in his trademark uh, phrase. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. Also, check out our website, LGGPodcast.com, chalk full of awesome information. So today is episode three of the Edamame episodes, if you have forgotten why we call them that, because they are not full podcasts. They are just some of the beans or peas in the pod. Ha ha, clever, hilarious. Uh, we're going to talk about music today, or rather, I'm going to talk about music today. Kirk is not here, although I did see him this morning. If you're interested in our prior episodes on music, check out Season 3, Episode 4, a clever, uh, oh, it's about a clever but futile attempt to copyright all music forever or to eliminate all music copyrights forever. Also, Season 2, Episode 9, we talk about mashups. Music is a topic we don't usually get uh, too deep into for a couple of reasons. One, it's a really hard area to cover because it's just a very confusing and, and dense area of law. And also, this is a, supposed to be a geek podcast, and music law specifically is usually a little bit outside of that focus. But we're going to go ahead and cover it today um, without, without any particular ties to like Star Wars or any of our usual topics. Uh, because the I think the stereotype of the band geek isn't isn't totally off base. Kirk and I were both uh, band nerds, and we both still play instruments. And I, I suspect, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect there's a decent amount of overlap between uh, geeks and uh, musicians. So we're going to go ahead and cover this. So fair warning, if you don't really care about music or music law, you can probably skip this episode, because I'm also going to talk a, a little bit about basic music theory, because I think it plays into why uh, music copyright lawsuits are uh, so strange uh, and frequent. Uh, not not any depth. I'm just going to spend a few minutes kind of going over how uh, songs are constructed to illustrate why um, some of these uh, you know popular songs uh, sound so similar to each other. The genesis for this episode is a recent court case that came out back in March, actually, about uh, the band Led Zeppelin. Their most famous song, Stairway to Heaven, variously referred to as the greatest uh, rock and roll song of all time. Uh, I don't agree, but uh, I do like Led Zeppelin one um, and I do like Stairway. So the case is called Skidmore versus Led Zeppelin, and the allegation is simple. Uh, a, a songwriter named Randy Wolf wrote a song called Taurus and performed it with his band Spirit uh, back in the 60s. And about 30 seconds into the song, there is a really neat guitar lick. It's about eight measures long, and I'll put in the show notes uh, links to this so you can listen to it yourself. He, he wrote this little guitar lick, and then a couple years later, Led Zeppelin wrote Stairway to Heaven, which contains um, a at least superficially similar-sounding guitar lick at the beginning. Legal shenanigans ensued after Randy Wolf died. The trustee of his estate, a person named Michael Skidmore, uh, sued Led Zeppelin, the members of the band, and their various uh, labels and producers and so forth. 
uh, alleging copyright infringement, claiming that Led Zeppelin stole that eight measures of music from uh, Randy Wolf. Long story short, Led Zeppelin won and Randy's estate lost. Uh, the Ninth Circuit upheld a trial court conclusion that the compositions were not similar enough to amount to copyright infringement. But this should, uh, you know, all that's rather unremarkable, all things considered, other than the fact that it involves one of the most famous uh, rock and roll songs of all time. But, you know, why, why is this being litigated now? These songs were written a long time ago. We're talking the, the mid-60s, late 60s. It's 2020. Uh, you know, this lawsuit was filed probably five years ago. So this song is 50 years old. Why is it being infringed and litigated now? And there's been a lot of these recently, uh, lawsuits over copyright infringement and songs. So I thought I'd go over a, a couple of things. One, the, the basics of, of how music copyrights work. Uh, and then two, a little bit about music. This is more the, the geek out portion for those of you who are into music. It'll probably be stuff you already know. Uh, if I get it wrong, I apologize. You can yell at me on Twitter. Every recorded song actually has two different and separate copyrights. One, the composition, and two, the recording. So let's talk about the composition. The composition copyright is the song sort of conceptually or in the abstract. It's the sequence of notes and pauses that ultimately comprise the melody. So there's a lot of ways you can write a song. I can write it on paper, such as by getting some sheet music and just writing out the notes. Or I could make it up in my head and just whistle it or sing it or hum it or play it on an instrument. But it's important to understand that with copyright, there is no copyright until the creative work is what they say, what they call fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Which means if I stood, if if I was just in my office here and I whistled a new song that I made up, there's no copyright to that song because I can't ever prove that it existed. Uh, but if I whistle the same song right now on this podcast, then there would be a copyright to it because the song is recorded and therefore fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So that's the composition copyright. So what what good does that do me? Well. First of all, only the songwriter uh, has the rights to exploit commercially that song. What does that mean? That means only the songwriter can make copies of the song, such as by producing sheet music or making recordings of a performance of the song. Only the songwriter can distribute those copies to the public. And only the songwriter can publicly display the lyrics. And only the songwriter can publicly perform the song. What this means is if anybody else wants to publicly perform the song, whether it's by playing it live with a band or recording uh, privately, doing a private recording of the song, and then playing those recordings in public, such as over the radio, then you need permission from the songwriter to do so, or, or license is what we call them. So this means, if I, again, if I want to print sheet music, I need the songwriter's permission because printing sheet music is making copies. Uh, if I want to sell sheet music, I need the songwriter's permission because I'm distributing those copies to the public. Uh, if I want to sit down in the privacy of my home and play the song on my guitar, do I need the songwriter's permission? No, not a public performance. There's no private performance right for the songwriter, only public, so my private performance is not covered by the Copyright Act. I'm free to do it. Now, what if I record my private performance? Well, now I'm making copies of the song again, so I would need the author's permission to record myself and likewise to distribute those recordings to others. Now, 
Practically speaking, if I get out my four track and record myself, how likely is it that I'm going to get busted and sued for copyright infringement? You know, practically speaking, there's virtually no chance of that happening. Nobody's ever going to find out, and if they do, it's not worth their effort. So, a lot of musicians will do home recording as a matter of uh, you know practice and and, and self improvement. What if I want to broadcast uh, a recorded performance over the radio? Well, that's a public performance. I have to get permission from the songwriter. What about playing the song at a local dive bar, whether it's with my cover band or over the PA system? Public performance, I need the songwriter's permission. What about playing the song at my kid's um, high school dance, you know, prom night? Public performance, need to get the songwriter's permission. Over the PA system, when my daughters were in gymnastics, they would have uh, four routines, and they would play these songs over the PA system for the girls to, to practice too. Public performance, you need the songwriter's permission. Another interesting one. Sitting on the street corner outside the stadium with my guitar case open for donations while I play some songs. Public performance, you need the songwriter's permission. All these things require permission from the songwriter. Now, that's the composition, and it goes to the songwriter only. Let's talk about the other copyright, the sound recording. Suppose the songwriter didn't write sheet music, but instead was just fiddling around with a piano um, or a guitar or something like that and then recorded it. Now there is a second copyright. We have the first copyright to the composition because the song is fixed in the recording, so we have that one. And then the second independent copyright is in the sound recording. In this particular case, it also belongs to the sound writer because she's also the performer in my hypothetical. But that's not always true, especially with big label music and you know uh, ensemble performing acts. So when you have, say, a five-person band performing a song in private, you don't need any rights from anybody. You and your garage band can get together and perform whatever you want. But if you record it, you then need permission from the songwriter to make a recording of the composition, known as a mechanical license, which we'll talk about later. And then once you record it, though, there's a second copyright in the recording, which belongs to the entire band, the sound recording copyright. This is what we usually think of when we think of a song. If I say, hey, you know that song, So I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, you're thinking of the recorded performance of Whitney Houston singing that song. But she's not the songwriter. Dolly Parton wrote that song. She's the songwriter. So Whitney had to get Dolly's permission to uh, record her performances. And when those performances were played on the radio, Dolly Parton, as the songwriter, had to give permission for radio broadcasts of Whitney's performance of Dolly's song. The rights are different for a sound recording. Although there is still the exclusive right to make and distribute copies to the public, there is no general public performance right for a sound recording. There is a limited right to digital audio transmissions. So again, this means that anybody can go out and play, you know, over the radio or just out in public anywhere, a recorded performance of a song. You could go out right now, pick any song from the Beatles catalog, uh, and broadcast it over uh, a loudspeaker, and you don't owe anything to the Beatles, and you don't have to get their permission even to do that. However, you still do need, and, that, and that's because there's no public performance right to the recording itself. However, you do still need to get permission from the songwriters, which for the Beatles is mostly Lennon and McCartney, 
for the use of the composition. And this results in this weird situation where for terrestrial radio plays, the songwriters get royalties because they need the permission and it costs money, but the performing artists do not. This has long been a sticking point with performing artists who don't write their own music and can sometimes lead to bands breaking up. You ever notice that when bands split up, the core songwriters usually stick together and everybody else leaves? It's because the songwriters are getting all the money and everybody else is not. So let's run through some examples of uh, public performance rights in, in compositions as compared to um, you know, the sound recording. So again, radio channel, you have to pay the, the composer or the songwriter. You do not have to pay the play, pay the, uh, performers, uh, at the local dive bar. Uh, if you're a cover band, obviously you're not using the recording at all. So there's no performers to pay, but even if the local dive bar is playing the recorded performance, you owe the songwriters, but not the performing artists, assuming that they're different people. And they usually are. If I want to play it at my local high school band or my kids' gymnastics uh, studio, same thing. Pay the songwriters. Do not have to pay the performing artists. And But it's a little bit different online. So if I'm going to listen to internet radio, there is a public performance right for sound recordings that are publicly performed via a digital audio transmission. So in that case, I would need both permission from the songwriter and permission from the band uh, that performed it. So that's one situation where it's different. Now, obviously, getting all these permissions would be a nightmare. And so uh, an entire industry has cropped up around this uh, to deal with it. Uh, for making the copies, uh, the Harry Fox Agency represents songwriters and handles mechanical licenses for you to make copies. This is for, like, cover bands or re-recordings. And for public performance rights to compositions... ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC are the organizations, I'm sure you've heard of them, that handle those rights. They'll often, uh, a venue will sometimes buy a license from each one of them, and then they can have whoever they want come perform. And then, you know, the venue gets the set list from the band, sends that back to the, uh, the collective licensing agency, and that's that. And uh, the agency handles hand, handing out the, the royalties to the, uh, the songwriters. Uh, and for public performance rights online, a sound exchange is basically does for uh, recordings what ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC do for songwriters. So, you know, most bands, even tiny bands, will register with these organizations. They get tiny little bits of royalties. In fact, I've, I've seen one case where even if you don't register, um, your stuff might get played anyway, and the companies will still track it. And if they can't find you, they'll still calculate the royalties and hold it in trust and even try and find you and send you a statement saying, hey, we owe you this much money. And I've seen a couple of composers get freaked out thinking they were being sued or something. But no, it's it's just sound exchange trying to give you money because a couple of your songs were played on Spotify or something. Uh, the rates are really low. For mechanical license, the rate is set by law, and it's it's pennies per copy. For internet radio plays, I don't know what the formulas are. I know they're complicated, but just uh, last week I watched uh, Don Henley. He was testifying uh, before the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on uh, the Digital Money and Copyright Act, and uh, Henley claimed that it required thousands of internet plays to generate even $1 of royalty income, which then usually gets split four ways, you know, amongst the band members. So a lot of internet plays are required before any any even modest income is generated. So I'm going to do an episode in the future about that particular issue and the current debate over the DMCA because uh, the Senate right now is uh, currently kind of re-examining that law. They kind of describe it as a MySpace era law in the age of uh, you know Twitter and Instagram, and it's kind of outdated. So that's an ongoing discussion, and I'll, I'll cover that separately. 
Um, but for now, let's talk about this Led Zeppelin case. Why, why, how did this happen? Like, why, you know, did Led Zeppelin was ultimately found not to have infringed, but how did this case ever get this far? Why do so many songs sound the same? The, the reason has to do with the way that modern popular music is, is put together. Uh, virtually all modern pop music, and especially rock music, is written using a certain type of, of musical scale known as the, the minor scale or the minor blues scale. So I'm going to try to do a multimedia presentation here with a, a little um, musical audio in the background. In Western music, there's only 12 notes. We have C, D flat, D, E flat, E, F, G flat, G, A, B flat, B, and C. If you don't know what those mean, don't worry, you don't have to. Those are just the names for uh, different tones. And I'm gonna play them all here real quick. That's it, that's all the notes in Western music. So. We've organized these into scales of music, which there's no fancy way to explain this. It's just sequences of notes that sound good together based on just what is sort of generally appealing to the ear. So a major scale uses a series of steps that sound like this. And that probably sounds pretty good to you, right? That sounds about how uh, basic music is supposed to sound. Uh, that's just a musical scale. That's a C major scale, which just means that it starts with C, goes up one octave to the next C, and then goes back down. Uh, the C major scale is used a lot uh, as a practice scale or a first scale because there's no sharps or flats. The notes are just C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. E easy enough. But if I start with any other note, then I'm going to have to use sharps or flats, I think. I don't think there's any that don't have that problem. Um, and that makes it confusing, and we don't want to get into that. So the C major scale is usually the first scale you learn. On a piano, it's basically a scale you can play using only the white keys. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Uh, major scales are bright and clean, and uh, with the right rhythm, you can get some really um, evocative emotions of triumph and victory and excitement. Uh, you know, the opening, uh, Kirk and I have said before, the opening um, uh, chord to Star Wars is a major chord. It's a B-flat major, so it sounds like this. But there are other types of chords and scales. And one of the common uh, ways that you can kind of change the emotional tone of music is to uh, flat some of the notes, which is a fancy way of saying, instead of playing the E, we're gonna play the E flat. It's a half step down, just sounds a little sadder. Same with the B, we're gonna play a B flat. Uh, we sometimes also flat the sixth note, so instead of an A, we play an A flat. When you put those together, you get a very different sounding scale. So here's C major, but C minor, Okay, it sounds a little different, right? It has a different emotional tone. It's a little bit, a little bit moodier. Okay, a little moodier. Um, also interesting with, with music, and again, one of the reasons why these songs sound the same is that every major chord also has a corresponding relative minor chord. I'm not gonna go into the complex you know, musical theory and mathematical reasons why this exists. The bottom line is that each major chord has a minor chord that also only uses notes in the major scale, identical notes, but it starts different, okay? So here's a C major chord. Okay, and here's an A minor chord, which uses all notes from the C major scale. It uses A, C, and E, but in a different order. So I'm gonna play C major, and then A minor. Okay, the A minor sounds a little moodier. It's a little more melancholy, because the, the third note is, uh, is off. Um, the, to play a proper A major, I would have the third note be like that, but instead it's 
Okay, there's a little more dissonance, um, and it makes it sound a little a little moodier, a little more melancholy. So the reason that's important is that since all the notes are the same, if I know how to play the C major scale and my C major chord, I can then play the corresponding A minor chord, and it sounds like it goes with that first that first chord because the notes are all the same notes in the same scale. There's another interesting phenomenon with this. Just because of how the notes and the chords work out, there are also um, other chords that will have all of their major notes in the same scale. So again, C is all the major notes, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. An F major chord is F, A, and C. And a G major chord is G, B, and D. So C major, F major, G major, and A minor have all of their notes, their co composition notes that make up the chords are in the G major scale. So what does this mean? This, this really means that if I just combine those four chords, they're always gonna sound good together. And this same phenomenon really holds true across all music. So if I consider C my first note, you can always go up to the chord starting with the fourth note, in this case F, and the fifth note, in this case G, and the relative minor, in this case A, and those will always work. We sometimes call this the one, four, five, or the one, five, four chord progression, because we go with the root one, and then the five, and then the four. Right? Sounds good, it sounds like an actual song. I'm just making that up right now. Um, now, if we also switch this and throw in the relative minor, we have the standard four chord rock and roll song. Now you know how to write and play basically every pop song ever written. One, one small note for St. Louis Blues hockey fans. There's a, also something we call the, the pentatonic scale. We have this because the fourth and fifth chords are parts of scales that have notes that do not work. We have something called the pentatonic scales. Penta meaning five, tonic meaning tone. And all it basically does is sort of cherry pick which notes in the C scale are going to be in all of these scales and thus will always sound good. And it's basically the root note, the minor third, the fourth, the fifth, the minor seventh, and the root note again one octave up. So the, this is called the minor blues. And this is sort of the building block of blues and you can just really in traditional blues music, we throw in a sixth note, which is the minor fifth. So we have the root note, flat third, fourth, flat fifth, fifth, flat seventh, and then the root note again. That minor fifth is really dissonant, and it really sticks out. And that's what gives really classical blues music the classical blues sound, is that minor fifth note. So for those of you who are blue hockey fans, that note is called the blue note, because it's what really defines the blues scale. So if you're a really big uh, blues fan, that's where the blue note logo comes from. Uh, now you can hear the scale used in, in virtually all, all music, not even rock and roll. It's in pop music. It's Auld Lang Syne, the New Year's Eve song, uses this same chord progression. And a great example of this, they, they opening uh, lick to that movie, The Lorax. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but it's, uh, it's an animated film based on a Dr. Seuss novel. But there is um, a song that Ed Helms' character performs called How Bad Can I Be? And the opening guitar riff to that is, is it sounds like exactly like a blues scale. You just... 
So uh, listen to that. Um, I'll put that in the show notes too. But you can hear this scale being used in the song. And the opening riff is almost almost just the scale and nothing else. So that's how universal this is. So what, what does this have to do with the music copyright? Well, the problem when it comes to music copyright is that it's kind of hard to sort out what is copyright infringement and what is just following this basic formula of these, these tones. What's just using... Um, you know, these chords and chord progressions, which have been used in hundreds and hundreds of songs, and just combining them in, in different ways or making minor variations of them. So uh, for a good example of that, I'm going to also put this in the show notes, but check out this video. It's called Axis of Awesome, uh, four, four chord songs. And they use this, uh, this one, five, minor uh, relative, and then four, a chord progression to play about 30 or 40 different pop songs. Everything from Journey to The Beatles, U2, Elton John, Don, John Denver, Lady Gaga, um, A Take On Me from the 80s, Auld Lang Syne, and even the America's Funniest Home Videos theme song all use this progression. So why do these songs, um, you know, how do we distinguish one song from another? This isn't a big deal when you can separate that way, right? Like, I can give you a Metallica song that does all, all these same chords. It's not going to sound like Nirvana, okay? Uh, but it becomes a problem when songs are in the same genre, and especially we're in the same genre written around the same time, where everything in the genre kind of has a similar emotional or tonal quality. And a great example of that, I think, is modern country music, which is itself also all based on blues. It's all these same chords in country music. It's no different from anything else. But country is a very specific, narrow subset of rock and roll with a very limited and precise, um, I call it an emotional palette, and a very limited range of vocalizations and, and tonal elements you can use. Because if you get outside of that, it just doesn't sound like country music anymore. There's actually a, a great video of a guy who mixed six or seven different country music songs together into one song. They all use these same chord progressions, and they all flow seamlessly one into the other because of that. Uh, and since they all have the same tonal palette, you can't tell where one begins and, and another ends. Uh, but compare that to, say, the Rolling, Tone, or Rolling Stones... The Rolling Stones are going to have a very different sound quality from Metallica or Nirvana or Offspring or John Denver, even though they're all using the same musical elements and just putting them together with different distortion effects, different syncopation, different rhythms, uh, that kind of thing. Going back to Led Zeppelin, why does it sound like Taurus, written by Randy Wolf? Um, I think part of the answer is that it's inherent in the structure of rock music. These two songs were written at about the same time. Both are in the same key. Both are in A minor. Both have very similar musical feature known as a line cliche. This is just where you take in a descending or ascending um, you know, sequence of notes, usually chromatic notes, meaning notes right next to each other like this. You, you do that, but you play it over the top of one chord. It's a very common songwriting technique that makes one boring chord sound interesting, okay? Um, so I can, I'm going to try and play one here. So I'm just going to play a C with a G root note. So here's a C major with a G. Then I'm going to run that G down to chromatic four steps. Okay. 
Okay, that's a line cliche. I just played the exact same C minor several or C major several times in a row. Then I played a G, G flat, F, and an E, and each one makes it sound a little more interesting and progressive. It's that's a common songwriting technique. Uh, it's been used by a lot of people. The Beatles have used it. Um, check out the opening, you know, a couple measures of Michel um, uh, fixing a hole. Um, does it as well. Uh, there's a lot of bands that have used this technique. It's very commonplace. So what we have is two songs, uh, Taurus and um, uh, Stairway to Heaven, written in the same key, both using a similar and well-known uh, blues riffing technique to add some you know, interest and variation to what is otherwise just a pretty boring chord. And But other than sharing the key and the technique, the actual sequence of notes is different. It's completely different. So, but it still sounds kind of the same. And I'll put I'll put links to that in the in the show notes too, so you can, um, you know, you can hear both songs. Or actually, I, I know one video of a guy who just plays both and kind of explains what's going on. So, I'll link to that. But they, although they sound very similar to the untrained ear, it's just because of the genre and the style of music. Beyond that, there's nothing else that's the same. They all use different note sequences. One goes up, one goes down. So. And, and that's the claim of copyright infringement is just those eight measures. But if the only difference, you know, the only similarity is technique and, and style, but the actual substance of the music is not the same, then, you know, it's not copyright infringement. That's basically what the court found. And I think that's kind of the crux of it. If you, if you don't know much about music or how it's written, um, it's easy to conclude that a lot of these uh, songs are just ripping off other songs. But the way that we, you know, compose popular music now is very specific and it's very limited and we we know what sounds good we know what people like we know what sells and you know it's also just a reality that a lot of songwriters and composers and musicians grow up poor. They, they don't take musical lessons. They never receive formal training in how to play classic guitar, which is completely different from rock guitar, completely different. So you got poor people just trying to learn to play their instruments. They don't, they don't want to. They don't have time to memorize a bunch of music theory and sit down and figure out, well, you know, if I'm going to play the minor descended, you know, natural six, they're not going to do all of that, okay? They, they just need to memorize where these, notes and sequences are on the fretboard of their guitar so they can play their instruments and make the music. And that's why we use things like the, the minor blues pentatonic scale. It's a shortcut to get to that. So when you get songs that are, are not audibly distinguishable by genre. You know, nobody, nobody's going to confuse Metallica for David Bowie. Uh, but when, when songs are, are less distinguishable through audible or, you know, stylistic differences, they're going to sound the same. And I suspect that we're also seeing as these older performers die off, uh, you know, they grew up in a time when the idea of, of even the idea of owning a song uh, didn't even occur to them. You know, they and they routinely borrowed and adapted from each other. And it was just sort of the, the culture of the time. And I think as these artists from especially the 60s and 70s begin to die and the rights to their songs are passed on to their heirs, who I don't want to cast aspersions, but maybe are looking to get more money than they, they, they think they think the songs are worth more than what what the artists are being compensated for. We may see more of these lawsuits being filed by children or spouses or successors who um, you know look around and see how much copyright infringement is going on, real copyright infringement. And, and start looking for somebody to hold responsible for it. And since chasing down the people who are on, you know, um, you know the, the, the P2P networks and, uh, you know, BitTorrents of the world, you, you can't get to them. So they're going to get their money elsewhere by, you know, filing copyright infringement cases like this over, you know, uh, relatively small encroachments that, that aren't even really encroachments. They're just 
two songs written at the same time that happen to use the same technique. So that's about all I have. I just wanted to give you an overview of music law, which I've been wanting to do for a while, uh, talk about the Led Zeppelin case, and then just do a quick little bit on the, the musical, um, the underlying musical issues to help understand why these songs that they may, they may sound almost identical, but the courts nevertheless decide that there's no infringement. And, and this is why, um, the, 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 the coincidence is due to uh, proximity in time, genre, and, um, and style, and in this case also key. But, you know, if, if, if sharing a key and, and blues riffing techniques is enough to infringe, then nothing else can ever be written because um, th those are all basic things that are done in every song. So, so that's all from me. Uh, Kirk has some more content coming our way. I just talked to him this morning, um, and he and I are also going to try to do a joint podcast Joint podcast at some point. Not sure when we're going to be able to do that. We were going to try to record that today, but time got away from us. So, And I'm also going to do another bit on the revisions to the DMCA that are going through Congress now. So in the meantime, you can expect more uh, in this format until we are uh, good and past COVID-19. Hopefully this is all working out for you, but uh, let us know either way. So check out our website, uh, lggpodcast.com. Uh, it has links to the platform so you can download episodes, get in touch with us. Uh, it tells you how to find us on Twitter, Facebook, by email, etc. Please subscribe. Please give us reviews. Please spread the message. Help people find us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri.